series speaker presenter Lyle Southwell presenting the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in his live series called The Prophetic Code. You'll be amazed as he cracks the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in ways you have never heard before. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that we're able to be here to gather together to study your word and to look into those most serious subject, the subject of the mark of the beast. And we pray that as we dig into this subject now, that you'll send your Holy Spirit to guide us. We pray that you'll come into our hearts. We pray that you will speak to us. We pray that you'll draw us close to you. And as we have a heavy subject this evening, we pray that it will be a subject that we will go out of here today knowing you better than we knew you before. And so we pray for your blessing. We pray for the presence of your holy angels. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, before we get into our subject this evening, the subject of 666, the seal of God, the mark of the beast, part two, we have a challenge from last night to deal with, don't we? Does everybody remember what that challenge was? I offered you all some money. How much did I offer you? Ah, $100,000. There you go. All right, so here we go. Now, of course, this for those of you who weren't here the other night, this was, this was a reward uh, for anybody who can find a verse in the Bible that says that we should worship on the first day of the week. And so what I said the other night was that I would save you the effort and I would show you every passage in the Bible that mentions the first day of the week. Does that sound fair enough? Yeah? Good. All right. So we start in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 5. Let's see if the Bible says that we should worship on the first day of the week. The Bible says, Genesis 1 verse 5, And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were which day? The first day. Is there any, any command here to worship on the first day of the week? No? In fact, this passage directs you to the end of the story that you find in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1 where the Bible says that Jesus established the seventh day of the week as the day of worship and he made it holy and he sanctified it and he blessed it. Isn't that so? All right, so there's no command there, but it does point us towards the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week. Okay, so let's move on from there to find our next reference To the first day of the week, we're going to have to launch all the way through the Bible over to the New Testament. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew. Matthew chapter 28, and you will find this one on page 404. There you go, page 404. The Bible says, Matthew chapter 28, verse 1, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the grave. Is there any reference here to the first day of the week? Is there any command here, I should say, to worship on the first day? We have the reference to it, but not the command to worship on it. Isn't that so? In fact, it references once again, which day is the Sabbath day? It tells us it's the one before the first day of the week. Isn't that so? Good. All right. Our next ones are all very similar to this. We go to the book of Mark, chapter 16, verse 1 and 2. The Bible says, and when the Sabbath was passed, that's page 413, And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came under the grave at the rising of the sun. Any command there to worship on the first day of the week? No, but it does reference which one is the real one. 
uh, verse 9, the Bible goes on. The Bible says in verse 9, Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. Well, then we move from there to the book of Luke. And we read this one last night, Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And verse 1, where it says, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the sepulchre, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and certain others with them. All right, we're starting to run out of options. Let's go to the Gospel of John and let's see if John says anything different. John. And we'll go over to John chapter 20 and verse 1. John 20 and verse 1, and it says, In the first day of the week comes Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark under the grave and sees the stone taken away from the grave. Once again, no command here to worship on the first day of the week. So let's go down to verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the middle of them and said, Peace be unto you. Why were the disciples assembled here on the first day of the week? They were scared for their lives, isn't that so? Yeah, this was not a worship service they were having. They were hiding. All right. So we don't have any command here to keep Sunday either. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And we'll read here verse 1 and 2. That's page 466. 466. The Bible says in verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do you. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Now, this is an interesting one because people have come to me with this verse and said, see, there you go. He's taking up an offering. Therefore, they must be all at church on that particular day. No, let's read the passage. Let's read what it says, shall we? Work our way through this passage. First of all, we need to give it some historical context. There was a famine in the land of Palestine. And as a result of the famine in the land of Palestine, Paul was raising uh, disaster relief material from the Gentile churches to relieve the Jewish churches. And it was a good way of building some bonds between the Gentile churches and the Jewish churches. And so as he's doing this, he sends this letter ahead and he says, look, this is what I want you to do on the first day of the week. Notice verse 2. Let every one of you lay by him in store. You know, I find it strange how people read that and they say, let every one of you go to church. Is that what it said? It says, no, on the first day of the week, they are to be storing things up. In fact, if you read the Greek behind it, it says, Lay by him in store, you know, it's by himself at home. Paul expected the Christians to be by themselves at home on the first day of the week in a good position to be able to collect things for the disaster relief collection that he was going to put together when uh, he arrived at that particular uh, time. 
Why would he ask them to do it on the first day of the week? The answer is very simple. The first day of the week, this was uh, Corinth. It was a Gentile church. Of course, uh, in Corinth, everybody were were, uh, pagans. They were sun worshippers. The first day of the week was a day that they had off. Nobody was working on that day because that was the day of worship for the pagan world. So they had the day off and they weren't at church, so they were in a good position to store things aside. So there goes that one, which leaves us with one last one, Acts chapter 20. Let's turn over there, Acts chapter 20. And here you actually have a worship service that took place on the first day of the week. This is page 450, Acts 20, page 450. We begin reading in verse 7 where it says this, And on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow or the next day, and continued his speech until midnight. Wow. How would you like it if I went until midnight tonight? Do you think there would be, would there any be anybody here who thinks that if I kept going until midnight, you might start to nod off? Well, that's, that's, that's praise the Lord. There's some people saying no. I have a funny feeling there might be one or two of you that would nod off. And guess what? Paul was preaching. He's a much greater preacher than me. And somebody nodded off. In fact, he was sitting in the, uh, in, in the window when it happened, which was a bad thing. In verse 8, it says, There were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together and they sat in a window. A certain young man named Eutychus being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching... He said, I feel a little bit better whenever I read this because sometimes people do go to sleep when I'm preaching. At least I'm not the only one. Paul was long preaching. He sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Paul went down and fell on him, embraced him and said, trouble not yourselves, his life is in him. And when he had therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till break of day, and then he departed. So here's the story. First of all, we don't have any command here, obviously, to to worship on the first day of the week. But this man falls out, goes to sleep, falls out of the window, dies. Paul goes down, raises him from the dead, and then they keep going all the way and through until, until, until the morning. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what is taking place here And why were they worshipping on the first day of the week? The answer to that question becomes plain when you recognise which part of the day they were worshipping. Which part of it? The light part or the dark part? There were many lights in the upper chamber. It was dark and he preached through until midnight. What's taking place here? Paul has been shown in vision that he will never see these people again. By the way... When does the day start biblically for Jewish people and for the early Christians? When did their day start? Does anybody know? It starts at sunset. The evening and the morning were the first day. From evening to evening shall you keep the Sabbath, the Bible says. So the day starts at sunset. So if the day starts at sunset and it's the first day of the week, what what do we actually call that in our terminology today? Saturday night. So they're meeting together on what we call Saturday night. 
So Paul is there. He's never going to see these people again. Um, they, gather, they, they, they get together. They have a worship all day Sabbath. Then on Saturday night, they have a meal together. They continue. Paul keeps preaching all through Saturday night. He comes to midnight. Eutychus falls out of the window, uh, dies. Paul raises him back from the dead. Um, they come up. They would have had, I imagine, the most amazing praise and worship service that you can imagine. So much so that Paul just keeps preaching all the way through until the next morning. And the next morning, he hikes 20-odd miles out to Assos to catch his ship just to demonstrate to us today that he's not setting this day aside as a day of worship. Well, maybe not just for that particular purpose, but it certainly serves that purpose, doesn't it? It shows us that Paul did not see that as being a day of worship. So we have no command there. Okay, so we need to move on into our, our subject When we come to the subject, we're going to look at a number of different things this evening, as I promised. We're going to look at 666. We're going to look at the mark of the beast. Let's start with 666. 666 is a very ancient number. It takes us all the way back to the ancient Babylonian zodiac that originally had 36 signs. Nimrod died. We have mentioned him before. His wife claimed that he had ascended to the sun and continued to rule from the sun. She took the moon because the sun was already taken. But there were other great heroes that came along afterwards. The sun was taken, the moon was taken, so what were they going to take? So they started to take stars and planets and constellations. The original zodiac had 36 signs in it. Now, the ancients were fascinated by mathematics. In fact, much of the mathematics that we have today originates in ancient Babylon. They built a system around the number six because for them, six was a sacred number, a part of their religion. It was involved with the hieroglyph of the serpent, amongst other things. They found that if you took the 36 signs of the zodiac and you added up the sum of them, you know, one plus two plus three plus four plus et cetera, et cetera, it came up to the number 666. And as a sacred number, they would work it into their architecture. They would work it into their language. They would work it into their mathematics. Even today, the hours of our day are divided up into four parts of six. Isn't that so? Takes us all the way back to ancient Babylon. The four elements of the universe, the four divisions of the day, divided up in relationship to the number six. And so you'll find it on coins and medallions and games that they played. You find all of these numbers that add up to 666. You find it in symbols all over the place. And we've looked at codes and symbols as we've worked through this subject, haven't we? You find symbols of the number six. And many people see this one as being a symbol of the Star of David. It actually predates Jewish use by hundreds and hundreds of years. It's a symbol made up of two pyramids interlocking each other, which gives us our connection with ancient Egypt. It was a symbol of the balance of the universe, up and down, good and evil, male and female. And the way it interlocks together was also a symbol of infinity. And it's interesting where you see this this symbol, of course, it creates a six-pointed star. The symbol of six pops up in the most unusual places where you would not expect to necessarily see it. Now, this one caught my attention because... The reason that the sun is depicted with a face goes back to the time of Nimrod when it was claimed that he had ascended into the sun and thus the sun is a person. The reason that the moon is depicted with a face is because that's 
Ishtar or Semiramis, Isis, whatever her name might be according to your culture. And so here you have the two faces and what do you have between them? Six, three six-pointed stars, six, six, six. Quite fascinating. You find the three of them together all over the place. Three six-pointed stars popping up as six, six, six. Now, this one is even more interesting again because this takes us back and shows us that 666 is an identifying mark of the Antichrist. Notice here that you have a statue of Ishtar and on her thigh you have this interesting symbol right there. Let's take a close-up look at that. The symbol of the bee. Why would the symbol of the bee be significant to the ancient mystery religions. What is its origin? Why would they choose that particular symbol? Well, the answer is very simple. The bee is a master engineer, isn't that so? And he creates the most beautiful symmetry in his honeycomb. And that honeycomb is made up of lots of what kind of shapes? Six-sided shapes. And so it was seen as being a sacred creature because it was involved with a sacred number associated with the worship of the sun. I find it interesting that if you go to what many would consider to be the centre of Christianity today, you notice here you have six six six-pointed stars over here. And over here, what do you have right there? Three Bs, six, six, six. But that's not the only place you find it if you go to the high altar. In St. Peter's Basilica, notice what the high altar is surrounded with. The face of Nimrod in the, in, in the sun and then 666, 666 on all four sides of it. Right there, hiding in plain sight. It's there for everybody to see. And then, of course, you take a little bit of a wander around Rome and what do you see popping up all over the place again and again and again, and often associated with the face of Nimrod. Once again, right there. And the three Bs right there. You just find it's absolutely soaked in it. In fact, if you go to the Vatican today, 666 is a number that you'll find popping up continually. It is just all over the place. And so we ask ourselves the question, what is 666 all about. Let's turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 13 and let's read what the Bible says about this mysterious number. Revelation chapter 13. What is it a code for? If we go down to the end of the chapter, in verse 18, the Bible gives us the number 666. In verse 18, it says this Here is wisdom. Let him that has understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So let's put this together so far. The Bible says that this is not the mark of the beast, it is the number of the beast, and it is the number of a man, or in other words, the number of the man of the beast. Number of the name of the man of the beast. Now, let's consider for a moment. In the ancient world, particularly the Roman world, letters of the alphabet had numerical value. Isn't that so? We still have Roman numerals today. And people, when they named their children, were often 
interested and also at the same time very careful about what the letters that made up their name added up to. If they came up with a name that added up to 666, then that was a good name. But if they came up with one that added up to the number 13, they were very suspicious about that, superstitious about that, and they wouldn't let, you know, they would, oh, no, got to change his name. We can't have uh, somebody here that has that name that goes, you know, um, um, by the number 13. And so this was not an unusual thing in that particular culture where you would actually count the numbers of it. There was no fancy multiplication or anything like that. You just simply add up all of the numbers as it were. All right, let's consider something else. We know that it is the number of the name of the man of the beast. Now, let me share with you something that is rather obvious. It must be in an unchanging language. The reason we say this is because the Bible says, Revelation chapter 1 says, blessed is he who reads and understands the words of this prophecy. That was to be understood all the way down through history, wasn't it? Yeah? You can't do that if the language changes, if you go back a thousand years in the English language, you would barely be able to recognize if you go back 2,000 years, it didn't exist. If the language changes, the spelling will change. And the moment the spelling changes, then the prophecy becomes worthless to us. Isn't that so? So you've got to put this in an unchanging language. It's interesting that when uh, Jesus died on Calvary, that Pilate wrote, Above the cross, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And he wrote it in three languages that I find very significant, Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. The reason I find those very significant is because those are the languages that have come down to us today in their purest form of Latin. Of course, Latin being a dead language is pure. We have the exact same language that they had in Roman times. So we find that it was written for all time. So then we ask ourselves, Is there a name, an unchanging name or title of the man at the head of the Vatican, the Pope, that has come down through history? And what we find is that the Pope has a coronation title that is used to this day. And a portion of that coronation title goes like this. Vicarious filii dei, the literal translation is in place of the Son of God. That's his title, coronation title right there. And notice if you add it up, vicarious, filii, dei, and it comes up to 666. So if you're wondering what 666 is, 666 is not the mark of the beast. It is an identifying characteristic of who the beast is. Another one that we could add to our list of 10 that we looked at the other night. So now we have to move on. And now we have to ask ourselves the question, well, then what is the mark of the beast. I remember when I first started studying this subject, and I mentioned it on the video, when I first started studying this particular subject, when I was a teenager, the first book that I ever read on the mark of the beast said that the mark of the beast was the barcode. You see, every barcode has the numbers 666 in it. And so they Aha, we have found the mark of the beast. Don't buy anything with a barcode on it because the moment you buy something with a barcode on it, you will have the mark of the beast. Now, I wonder where all those people are today, whether they have starved to death yet or not. 
I tend to think that they probably haven't, but it illustrates the foolishness of what takes place when we speculate about the mark of the beast rather than finding out what does the Bible say about the mark of the beast. We make idiots out of ourselves when we speculate, don't we? Well, then that was during the 1980s or during the, to the, the 1990s, the technology changed. New technology came along and they invented the computer chip. And I had a friend who um, had a dog and they wanted to put a computer chip into his dog and he's like, no, 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 there's no way that's going to happen because I don't want my dog to have the mark of the beast. He was really in love with his dog, you see. And so um, one day his dog happened to wander off and somebody um, found it and took it to the pound and... uh, They managed to trace it back to him. They said, look, you need to come and get your dog. It's here in the pound. It's going to cost you X amount of dollars to get it out of the pound. And included in that cost, we put the chip in it. And so he climbed over the fence that night to rescue his dog from receiving the mark of the beast. And it was all on CCTV footage. (laughs) Not sure how he got on in court case with that one. Then we came to the 2000s and the technology changed again. And I find it interesting. Every time the technology changes, the theory as to what the mark of the beast might, change, might be changes along with it. Does God want us to be speculating? No. Does he want us to change what the mark of the beast is every time technology changes? No, of course he doesn't. During the 2000s, of course, uh, the new thing was vein scanning, iris scanning, uh, electronic thumbprints, all these kind of things of... Um, visited people uh, in jail at times and of course you give your electronic thumbprint and they've got your record then and it's who knows what they do with it. it's probably global and probably got it for the rest of their lives well if they track me down God willing I'll be able to share the gospel with them and so we find that each time the technology changes people come up with something different however what we need to look at is what does the Bible say is the issue with the mark of the beast Is the issue with the mark of the beast technology? Does the Bible say that? Let's read what the Bible says, beginning in Revelation 13 and verse 15, where it says this, And he had power to give life to the image of the beast. And by the way, if you want to know who the image of the beast is, you will have to be here tomorrow night. He had power to give life to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and force that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. What's the, what's the issue in this passage right here? The issue is worship. That is the one and only central issue in the book of Revelation at the end of time. It is all about worship. Well, it continues on. He forces all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads that no man might buy or sell except he that has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And so here we find the mark of the beast. What is the mark of the beast associated with? Well, we know immediately that it is associated with worship. Isn't that so? And we also know that worship is associated with obedience. Now, in the book of Revelation, what we find is, and in fact, when we uh, study the subject of the Antichrist, because this is the mark of the beast or the mark of the Antichrist, we find that there are a whole bunch of uh, of counterfeits that have been created 
down through the centuries to direct our attention away from Jesus Christ. And that always worries me. When I see something that directs my attention away from Jesus Christ, that worries me. Doesn't it worry you? Yeah, absolutely. Counterfeits from tradition, what are some of the ones that we have? The Word of God has been replaced by tradition. The Holy Spirit has been replaced by the Pope. One sacrifice, the Mass. Baptism, sprinkling. Communion, transubstantiation. The eternal law, the law changed. Tithes and offerings, taxes and indulgence. And then we have the seal of God versus the mark of the beast. So if we go to the issue of worship, we ask ourselves, what is the issue with worship? Let's read this one again. We've read it before. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. We won't read all of these verses. We don't have time, but we will read... This one, Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. The Bible says, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Friends, what is the issue right here? Is it our profession? Is it what we say? Is it... Is it you know, how we present ourselves. What does the Bible say? Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, oh, I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus so much. Is that the issue? No, the issue is who, he that does the will of my Father. It goes on with a heavy statement right here. As many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in your name cast out devils and in your name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. How could that possibly be? People that work miracles in the name of Jesus, that talk about Jesus, that say they love Jesus. And yet the Bible says that they are workers of iniquity because they don't do what Jesus says. The highest form of worship, friends, is obedience. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 21, the Bible says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. It does not say, well said. There's a difference, isn't there? John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I've highlighted this one because this one really focuses us on the whole issue in relationship to obedience. If you are obeying God so that you can get yourself into heaven, there's a major problem. The only reason that we should ever be obeying Jesus is because we love him. It's a love response. And if you love Jesus, if you love him, you're going to want to do what he says. Isn't that how it works? If you love Jesus, there's no problem. Acts chapter 5, verse 32, the Bible says the Holy Spirit is given to those that obey. John chapter, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 21, Jesus, the Bible says, we do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Once again, it places it in the right context. We do it because it pleases him. If we are doing it to try and get ourselves into heaven to be good enough to be saved, there's a problem. Obedience is a love response to God. Worship is a love response to God. And then these ones in Revelation chapter 12 that actually speak about those who gain the victory over the mark of the beast and it describes them as those who keep the commandments of God in each one of those passages right there. Friends, the issue with what God wants to place in your forehead is all about, and the issue of the mark of the beast is all about the law of God. Turn with me your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 11. That's page 79. 
Deuteronomy chapter 11, page 79. And we'll start reading in verse 1. What is the issue with what, what goes in the, in the forehead or in the hand? In Deuteronomy 11 and verse 1, the Bible says, Therefore you shall love the Lord your God and keep His charge and His statutes, His judgments and His commandments always. That gives us our context for what comes up. Then he goes on and talks about his commandments and his statutes, etc., etc., until you come down to verse 18, where it says this, Therefore shall you lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. The issue with the hand and the forehead is the law of God because it is all about worship. Now, I'm not saying that technology of some description will not be used to enforce the mark of the beast, but technology is not the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is all about worship. Let me show it to you another place in the Bible. Turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel chapter 8. We read this some nights ago. The Bible talks about God's people at this particular time who had gone into terrible apostasy and behind the scenes, secretly, they were worshipping the sun. They were worshipping Nimrod, Ishtar and Tammuz. In verse 7, the Bible says, And he brought me to the door of the court and I looked and behold a hole in the wall. He said, Dig in the wall. In verse 9, he said, Go in. In verse 10, it says, So I went in and saw and behold every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall. And there stood before them 70 men of the ancients, the leaders of the house of Israel. In this secret room they were. In the middle of them stood Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, every man a censer in his hand and a thick cloud of incense rising up. What is the issue here? The issue is worship and the issue is false worship. It goes on. He said, have you seen this? See greater abominations than these. Goes down to verse 14. He brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for who? Tammuz. Forty days of weeping for Tammuz. Then you go on to verse 16. He brought me to the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east and they worship the sun toward the east. Here God's people had gone into terrible apostasy and so God gives a prophecy, a message and Ezekiel sees it in vision. In verse 9, he sees a vision of six men with destroying weapons. In verse 2, they come and amongst them is a man with a writer's inkhorn by his side and they stand beside the brass altar. The glory of God was there. And then in verse 4, the Lord said unto him, Go through the middle of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark on the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for the abominations that are done in the city. In other words, God's people were going to receive a mark, a seal, a sign in their forehead. Isn't that so? And so what is taking place here? This is a dividing between the righteous and the wicked. Don't we have the same thing in Revelation? God's people receiving the seal of God in their foreheads. The others receiving a mark in their forehead or in their hand. And it's all associated with the issue of worship. Do you see how worship is central to everything that is taking place here? 
Here's an interesting thought. Put it in the context of what we studied last night. And when we looked at last night, the righteous people, God's people at that particular time, which day of the week did they worship on? Seventh day, Sabbath, yeah, of course. And those here that the Bible speaks about as worshipping Tammuz and the sun, which day of the week did they worship on? Sunday. Yes, if you're going to go through the city and divide between one group and the other, the easy way to do it is those who worship on the Sabbath, those who worship on Sunday. That would be a fairly simple way of dividing it up, isn't that so? Yeah. Interesting, particularly as we consider the mark of the beast. Let's identify the mark of the beast. Let's make a list of some of the things that we know about the mark of the beast. Number one, it defines the authority of the papacy. Well, why do I put that up right there? The reason that I put that up there is that because the Bible says this is the mark of the beast. We know who the beast is. We have studied this before. We're dealing with the Vatican. And it shows their mark of authority. So you have those whose allegiance through their actions goes to God and those whose allegiance through their actions goes to the Vatican at the end of time. One receives the seal of God, the other receives the mark of the beast. It's the opposite of the seal of God. It's a counterfeit of the seal of God. It is opposed to the law of God and involves breaking it. Why do we say that? Because everything we find, Deuteronomy chapter 11, the issue with what goes in your forehead, what is in your hand, is all about the law of God. And the law of God is central to the issue of worship. So it's all about worship. And then we come down to this last one. It's symbolic of a religion of human creation. You have two systems of religion in the world, one created by God and one created by human beings. And this one is symbolic of a religion, obviously, of human creation. So if the Bible says right here in Revelation chapter 13, and it says that it is the mark of the beast, and we know who the beast is because we have studied it in detail, that's the Vatican then we have a number of different options. We can study the Vatican ourselves. And by studying the Vatican, we can say, well, I wonder what is their real mark of authority? And then we can assign something and say, well, I say that their mark of authority is this. Would that be very fair, do you think? Because that would be me saying it, wouldn't it? And I could come up with something, I could find something there that I particularly didn't like, and I could assign it, couldn't I? Don't you think it would be more fair if we asked them, and said, what is your mark of authority? Wouldn't that be more fair? And then take it back and compare it with the Bible and see if it fits, right? All right, so let's ask them, what is their mark of authority? Here it comes. Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible, and this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of the fact, and any Protestant who keeps Sunday acknowledges this. And again... Of course, the Catholic Church claims that the change was their act. It could not have been otherwise, as none in those days would have dreamed of doing anything in matters spiritual and religious without her. And the act is a mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. And again, question, how do you prove that the church has power to command feasts and holy days by the very act of changing the Sabbath into Sunday? which Protestants allow of, and therefore they fondly contradict themselves by keeping Sunday strictly and breaking most other feasts commanded by the same church. And so then you ask yourself the question, well, how is it, why is it that the Catholic Church sees Sunday as being so central that they call it, this is our mark of authority? Well, when you think about it, friends, the answer is really quite simple. 
You see, if you have the power to change the law of God and then the rest of the world follows you, then that gives you an awful lot of authority, wouldn't you say? How did it originate within the Vatican that they made this particular claim? Well, to find the answer to that, we have to go back to the Great Reformation of the 16th century. It was started by a man by the name of Martin Luther, a German monk. Here he is on this side right here. Martin Luther began the Reformation based on the principle of the Bible alone. Now, that was a major challenge to the Vatican because they said that tradition made by humans was equal to Scripture. People, the, the Reformation took Europe by storm. In a very short space of time, the Vatican was rocked to its very foundations by this concept of the Bible alone. By taking the basis of the Bible alone, Martin Luther discovered the principle of salvation by grace alone. That also rocked Catholicism to its foundations. And so the Vatican said, well, we need to do something about this. We need to bring an end to this. And so they organized a dispute a debate, the Leipzig disputation it was called between Dr. Luther and Dr. Eck. And Dr. Eck was their champion. Nobody had ever beaten Dr. Eck in any kind of debate ever before. And so these guys, you know, they, they got together and they went at it. And it was Luther and Karlstadt. Karlstadt headed it up. Luther uh, directed it from behind who debated from one side, and Dr. Eck debated it from the other. These guys would go all day. They'd go like 17 hours a day, and they'd take a break every now and then. They'd come back to it day after day after day after day. I don't know how they ever kept their concentration through this big, long debate. Eventually, Dr. Eck pulled this one out. He said, finally, the power of the church over the Scriptures holds good from this fact. By the way, this debate was all about the concept of the Scriptures alone or... Scriptures including tradition. That was what it was all about. Because that's, you know, that's, what, that's what the Reformation stood or fell on. And so he says, Finally, the power of the church over the Scriptures holds good from this fact, that the church, resting on the fullness of power granted to it, has made changes with certain precepts of the Scriptures. For notwithstanding the Sabbath commandment, Sunday has taken the place of the Sabbath. Now that was an argument that Luther could not answer because he was a Sunday keeper. What was the result? Well, Dr. Eck was declared the winner of the debate. Karlstadt kept the Sabbath from that day forward and kept until the day that he died. Luther claimed that Karlstadt was the finest lecturer that he had in his university. And later, even though Luther didn't keep the Sabbath, and I don't really know why, he made this admission when he, when he wrote the Augsburg Confession of Faith, the Lutheran Confession of Faith. He said, The observance of the Lord's Day, Sunday, is founded not on any command of God, but the authority of the church. At least he was honest in that. Well, then we come down some more years because the emperor at that time, Charles V, he wanted to restore order in his empire. The Reformation had split it in half and he said, okay, you Protestants, you evangelicals, you need to come and talk to the Catholics and you need to sort this problem out so that we can have unity again. Well, the Vatican tried every trick in the book to avoid that ever taking place, but it couldn't be avoided forever until in 1545 they convened the greatest church council ever held 
called the Council of Trent. It lasted for 18 years. They didn't allow any of the evangelicals to turn up. They just debated it amongst themselves. And it was all about just one thing. How do we defend our position of making tradition equal to Scripture? Because unless we can defend that position, then we are finished. We are over. So for 18 young years, they argued it backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, until eventually they dusted off Dr. X's arguments and came to this conclusion right here. Finally, in the last opening on the 18th of January, 1562, the Archbishop of Reggio made a speech in which he openly declared that tradition stood above Scripture. The authority of the church could therefore not be bound to the authority of the Scriptures because the church has changed Sabbath into Sunday, not by the command of Christ, but by its own authority. With this to be sure... The last illusion was destroyed and it was declared that tradition does not signify antiquity but continual inspiration. And once again, another statement. What authority is there for changing the Sabbath from the seventh day to the first day of the week? Who gave the Pope authority to change the command of God? And of course, these are all Roman Catholic sources. If the Bible is the only guide for the Christian, then the Seventh-day Adventist is right in observing Saturday with the Jew. But Catholics learn what to believe and do from the divine, infallible authority established by Jesus Christ, the Catholic Church. Is it not strange that those who make the Bible their only teacher should inconsistently follow in this matter the tradition of the church? And so we go back to our original questions right here, statements. Does Sunday define the authority of the papacy? Well, they claim that it does. Is it opposite the seal of God? The seal of God is the Sabbath. You can't get any more opposite the seal of God than the Sabbath. Let me, let me, than Sunday. Let me illustrate this for a moment. The Sabbath is a memorial of what event? Creation. It is there to remind us every week that we are the personal, individual creation of God. It reminds us of the meaning of life. It reminds us of why we are here. And it reminds us that Jesus redeemed us on Calvary. Now, God is all-powerful, isn't that so? So if God had wanted to, he could have created the world in five days and rested on the sixth, couldn't he? Yeah, he's all-powerful. He could have created it in four days and rested on the fifth. He could have created it in three days and rested on the fourth. He could have created in two days, rested on the third. He could have created in one day and then had the second day as his day of rest. But you can never have the first day of the week as a memorial of creation, the creative power of God, because you can't have a day of creation and also have a day of rest because those things are two opposites. You see, this is why Sunday, the first day of the week, was chosen because it is the only day that can never in any circumstance point us to our Creator God. Is it the opposite of the seal of God? Is it the opposite of the law of God and involve breaking it? The Bible says that He would think to change times and laws, times plural. He removed the second commandment. We looked at that some nights ago completely out of the Ten Commandments, split number 10 into two to, so that they still had 10. Then he came to the fourth, changed the day of worship. So he changed, he changed two commandments out of the 10. 
Then he changed two times, from Saturday to Sunday. There's one time. From sunset to sunset to midnight to midnight, there's your other time. He changed times and laws just as the Bible said he would. Is it symbolic of a religion, of human creation? Friends, if I come to God and I say to God, this what I do is good enough for you. Is that salvation by grace? No, that's the complete opposite of salvation by grace. That is salvation by works. But if I come to God and say, God, I love you so much, I will do anything you ask me to do. That is salvation by grace. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, the Bible says that Sabbath is a sign, a symbol of salvation by grace for that very reason right there. It shows, it reveals where our heart really is. Now, at this particular point, I often have a lot of people squirming in their seats and they go, well, I've been going to, I've been going to church all my whole life on Sunday and all my family, all my relatives, they all went to church on Sunday. Does that mean they all have the mark of the beast? The answer, and I want to make this very, very clear so that you don't misquote me when you go out of here this evening, the answer is no. Notice what the Bible says. Revelation chapter 13. Let's look at the issue with the mark of the beast. The Bible says in verse 16, and he forces all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. Is anybody forcing you to worship on Sunday right now? No. Therefore, Sunday is not yet the mark of the beast, but when it is forced, enforced, then Sunday is the mark of the beast. And so, and another thought on that that I need to cover before I go any further, Acts chapter 17, because some people get very worried and they say, well, you know, my whole family, they worshipped on Sunday. They didn't know that Sunday was a pagan day of worship, that it came into the church centuries after the time of Jesus. In Acts chapter 17, the Bible says in verse 30, it says, and the times of this ignorance... God winked at, he turned a blind eye to what we don't know and don't have the opportunity to know. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. So what does the Bible say that we should do once we learn something that is new, that is truth? Obey it. Yeah, that's what the Bible says. You know, people, many people ask me the question, you know, when did, how did Sunday ever become a part of the Christian church? The answer is very simple. If you go back many, many centuries, of course, as we looked at the other night, the early Christians all kept Sabbath Saturday. You can see that in history. There's just a multitude of statements from history where you can look at that, as well as uh, in the Bible. The Bible says that. Sometime after the death of Jesus, there were some Christians who said, we should have a day once a year on which we remember the resurrection of Jesus. And this was the early origins of Easter before it was set to the Easter uh, cycle of the moon. And so once a year they would have this one day and it was a Sunday to remember the resurrection of Jesus. Then they found that in the pagan world, everybody in the pagan world worshipped on which day? Sunday. And they worshipped on Saturday. And so they said, well, we need to be evangelists. We've got this day off 
on Sunday when nobody's working. We need to be evangelistic. Let's make Sunday our day of evangelism. And because we want our day of evangelism to be successful on Saturday, let's fast and pray on Saturday for our evangelistic effort on Sunday. All the pagans will be free. We'll invite them along and preach to them on Sunday, which is, of course, is the origin of our two-day weekend. We like our two-day weekend in Australia, don't we? It's kind of starting to disappear a little bit. But that's where, and for a long time, you had many groups of Christians, particularly in the city of Rome and the city of Alexandria, where this really started off, who worshipped on both days of the week. Now, which one of those two days do you think they enjoyed the most? The fast day or the evangelism day? Yeah, I don't know. I've fasted once or twice in my life for my health. I don't do well fasting. I'm too thin. By the end of the day, I'm starting to get dizzy. I don't do it anymore. It's dangerous for me. Some people do it on regular occasions, but not a good thing for me. And so they began to enjoy Sunday and eventually they said, well, let's forget this. And it started in Rome and Alexandria, the first two cities that actually did it. Let's forget Saturday altogether and we'll just have Sunday. It's interesting, the Bishop of Milan came down to visit Rome during this time period and while he was in Rome, he worshipped on Sunday, he went back to Milan and All of his parishioners were very, very upset with him. Why were you worshipping on Sunday down there in Rome? You know what his answer was? When in Rome, do as Romans do. You wanted the origin of that statement? That is the origin of that statement right there. It comes from, it actually originates from this issue of the change of Sabbath to Sunday. And it gradually spread throughout the world. Of course, it never disappeared entirely. And there have been Christians worshipping on the seventh day Sabbath all the way down through history, right down to our time. However, the next question that comes up out of this is very simple. If we are near the end of time and the Bible says that the mark of the beast will be enforced and if the mark of the beast is actually Sunday, then are there efforts in our world today to enforce Sunday? Now, when I ask that question, most people look at me like, what are you on? The reason they ask that question is because people aren't looking at the issue. But when you start to look at the issue, you will find a huge swell in process right now to establish Sunday as a day of worship. I'm going to run through some of the history of it. Some of these statements go back quite a few years and then we're going to bring it all the way down through until this year. So we'll start back in 1976 when Hal Lindsey made this statement, all businesses, including gasoline stations, restaurants, should close every Sunday by force of legislative fiat through the duly elected officials of the people. Germany, this is 1990, make plans to make Sunday the official day of rest for the EC's 320 million citizens. Pope launches a crusade to save Sunday. Sunday rest will force workers to their knees in Europe. Christians should seek recognition for Sunday and the church's holy days as legal holidays. It's time that we demonstrate our Catholic vitality and engage in the public policy debate. We have the power and the people to embark on this movement. April 1, 1997, Pakistan, a nation of 120 million Muslims, altered its rest day from Friday to Sunday. Some people ask me the question, why does the Bible say that the mark of the beast can be received in the forehead or in the hand, whereas the seal of God can only be received in the forehead. The answer is very, very simple. If you read in the Bible, the hand is a symbol of works, the forehead is a symbol of where moral decisions take place. The frontal lobes of your forehead is where moral decisions take place. Some people receive it by doing it. They don't actually believe in it. They don't make a moral decision to do it. 
it's convenient for them because Pakistan couldn't, couldn't maintain having their stock exchange closed on Fridays any longer. So they changed their day of rest. It was a convenience issue rather than a moral decision. Well, let me run through very quickly. In particular circumstances, their own day, Christians will naturally strive to observe that civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. Bendigo, we have the same thing happening. Pat Robinson, speaking about the New World Order, says that remember Sabbath day to keep it holy should be central to the New World Order. And of course, he refers to Sunday there. March 98, Nebraska. March 98, the Netherlands. There was a lot of things happening in 98. Norway. Uh, 2001, the priest pushed for Universal Day. Uh, 2005, without Sunday, we Catholics cannot live. Uh, 2006, the French courts ruled that the Louis Vuitton flagship, my wife's always wanted one of those handbags, I don't know why, but anyway, too expensive. Store must remain closed on Sundays in accordance with the law. The suit was brought against the famous Paris fashion house by the French Confederation of Christian Workers. Union of Church and State coming in right here. Uh, Croatia, where are we going here? The Protestant churches in Germany and England initiative in 2009. Uh, what have we got here? 2009, once again, in Germany. Again, we could go, I, I don't have time to go through all of these. 2010, effective from January to then, Berlin must fall into line with the law institutionalizing Sunday as a day of rest and religious contemplation. Uh, the Marshall Islands, the Cook Islands, uh, the European Union, what are we coming down to now? We're still in 2010. We trust that such cooperation will pave the way for the creation of the first European Free Sunday Alliance. The Pope in 2010. Where are we up to? This year, Sunday should remain a day of rest. I also hope that Sunday will be a day of rest. Sunday must be a day of rest for everyone. Sunday is the day of man, a day which everyone must be able to be free. The Catholic News, June 6 this year. Uh, Benedict in this year said only such an extraordinary and revolutionary event, the resurrection, could have persuaded the early Christians to start a system of worship different from the Sabbath. Jesus says this. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Who here this evening wants to place their allegiance with Jesus Christ? I know that I do. Is that what you want to do? Well, praise God, friends. God is so good. Let's bow our heads as we close with prayer. Father, we pray that you'll bless us with your presence. We pray that every one of us will maintain our allegiance to you above all things, that we will not follow a man-made religion, but that we will follow a religion of what you have outlined for us, that our spirituality will be connected to you as our Lord and Saviour. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. been listening to an M24 media production of The Prophetic Code by speaker-presenter Lyle Southwell. For more information, visit knowthecode.global or call 3ABN Australia Radio on 02-4973-3456.